This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. Spring training games are rolling along. The mailbag is back after, believe it or not, a month away. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. Hope you enjoyed the conversation between Ken and Evan Drellick a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are back to answer your questions this week. But before we get to that, Ken, the World Baseball Classic is almost here. The games start on Tuesday with Cuba against the Netherlands. That kicks things off 11 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Team USA has exhibitions this week, Wednesday against the Giants, Thursday against the Angels, and then they open up group play Saturday night against Great Britain, a rematch of the World Cup, I guess. Uh, so, Ken, <laughs> you're, you're going to be covering, I know, a ton of these games for Fox. Are you excited? I am excited, Tim, and before anyone out there says, yeah, 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 you're just excited because it's on Fox, no. I love the World Baseball Classic. I don't love it maybe quite as much as John Morosi of MLB.com, my good friend who lives for the World Baseball Classic, but I greatly enjoy it, and I know fans, some fans, have a hard time with it, and I understand. It is not, at least not yet, the baseball equivalent of the World Cup. That's what baseball wants it to be, and maybe one day it will get to that point, but it is not that. It is not the same kind of prominence. It also is something, a tournament, that is squeezed into the middle of spring trading. There is no good time to play this thing, and that's another reason why some fans kind of have mixed feelings about it. I get it. And I also understand if you're the fan or a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, Cleveland Guardians, New York Mets, Los Angeles Angels, name a team. You're worried about your players going to the World Baseball Classic and getting injured. Your teams are worried about their players going to the World Baseball Classic and getting injured. Fair concern. To that I will say, players get injured all the time in spring training. Now, yes, for pitchers especially, there is... The fear of greater exertion during the tournament with the passion boiling and the competitive juices flowing, absolutely true. But for the most part, players get hurt every day in this sport, and that's a risk they take every time they're on the field, pitchers included, even in spring training. So for the sake of the sport, Major League Baseball and its efforts to grow the game internationally... This is a trade-off that no one is particularly comfortable with, but it's a trade-off that the sport, the league, and the union, by the way, this is a joint venture of the league and union, they're willing to make that trade-off. And they're willing to make it because they see the greater good. All right, that's kind of setting the tone, setting the stage for this. And to all those who criticize the WBC and all those who say, ah, I'm not going to watch that, I don't care, I offer only one bit of advice. Actually, watch the games. These games are among the most fun I have covered in my career. Yes, in my career. I've done all these World Series, both in print and for Fox. I've done All-Star Games, Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's record. Name it. I've done a lot of great things, covered a lot of great sporting events. 
a lot of great baseball games. These games have an elevated passion to them, an elevated electricity. The games in Miami with the teams from Latin America will be off the charts crazy. And then, of course, the tournament ends in Miami as well. The game in Phoenix between the U.S. and Mexico, I believe, is already sold out at Chase Field. That will be a fascinating electric atmosphere. And the players, yes, the players respond to it. Think of Mike Trout. Mike Trout watched this event six years ago. That was the last time it was played. COVID, of course, got in the way the last couple of years. And Mike Trout thought, I want to play in that. And this year, Mike Trout is Team USA's captain. Think of Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw also considered the WBC one of the few, if only, unchecked boxes in his career. He wanted to play, couldn't play for insurance reasons, but it just speaks to his desire. Now, not every player is participating, but throughout this tournament, you're going to see some of the biggest stars of the game. Otani is playing for Japan. The Dominican roster, I wrote about it last week, even without Guerrero, it is absolutely ridiculous. Machado, Devers, Pena, Julio Rodriguez, you can go right down the line. And even in Team USA's group, which is not quite as difficult a group as the one that includes Venezuela, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic in Miami, even the Team USA group, Colombia, Canada, Great Britain, and Mexico, there are major leaguers sprinkled throughout those teams. Colombia, Gio Urshela, Harold Ramirez, Jorge Alfaro. Jose Quintana was supposed to pitch for Colombia, but he's out because of back soreness. Canada, Freddie Freeman, of course. But also Tyler O'Neill, Bo Naylor, Cal Quantrill, Matt Brash, the Seattle reliever. Great Britain, all right, Great Britain doesn't have as many stars. Trace Thompson is really the biggest name for Great Britain. But Mexico, look at this, or listen to this. Julio Urias, Taiwan Walker, and Patrick Sandoval. That's their rotation. Pretty good. From the Rays, Jonathan Aranda, Randy Arozarena, and Isaac Paredes. Austin Barnes from the Dodgers, Jaron Duran from the Red Sox, Giovanni Gallegos from the Cardinals, Alec Thomas, and Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox as well. So there are a lot of names throughout this tournament. The Japanese rotation, Otani, Darvish, Roki Sasaki, the 21-year-old who threw a 19-strikeout-perfect game last season. That's pretty good. So we're going to have a lot of talent on the fields all over the world. It's going to culminate in Miami. This is a round-robin double elimination tournament at the start, and then it becomes an eight-team single elimination tournament once we get to Miami. Two teams from each group will advance to Miami. So again, people will have mixed feelings. That is fine. You're going to have all kinds of opinions about this particular event. But if you are a fan of baseball, if you are a fan of baseball, you want to watch. And again, I know what some of you are thinking and probably tweeting. Can you work for Fox? You should. No, no, no. Every year this thing has taken place, I've been down with it. And I'm down with it because it's a celebration of the best our game has to offer. So, I am looking forward to it. We're going to have 10 broadcasts in 12 days. That's a more intense schedule for me than I have even during the postseason. 
10 games in 12 days, starting with two. A doubleheader on Fox, Big Fox. Saturday night, Colombia and Mexico, Great Britain and the U.S. Again, have fun with this, folks. That's what it is. It's a fun event. All right, Tim, enough of my diatribe. Let's go. I was going to say that I don't work for Fox, and I'm really excited about it. If nothing else, like these games, the intensity is, in my opinion, above regular season baseball. And this is happening in the middle of spring training. It's certainly better than that. So just embrace like really good, energized baseball where the players are playing with fire and emotion when you could be watching starters going two innings number 74 pitching against number 58 in the eighth inning of a tie game that ends up in a tie. You know what I mean? So just embrace what it is and why it's here. Like you're right. There's no good time to play this in the year, but spring training is the worst baseball of the year. And if we can replace that with great baseball, let's do it. All right. On to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved uh, next time around, you can call us at 646-543-7072, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. All right, Ken, a lot of kind of negative questions this week just because of the state of the game and where people think maybe the CBA is going. But let's start with Hillel. He says, as a data analyst by trade and baseball fan who loves analytics, especially since teams are so analytically driven, I cannot fathom why or how players still, quote, compete for a starting job during spring training. The sample size is so small and the pitchers they are facing usually aren't that good. So why would a team base a starting position player like Yankee shortstop based on something so not statistically accurate? Hillel, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Usually teams have a good idea of how these competitions are going to turn out before they begin. That's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind is that teams, when making their evaluations in spring training, and let's assume for the sake of discussion, the Yankees shortstop competition is an actual competition. Okay. They're not simply looking at statistics. This is not all based on that. In fact, probably very little is based on that. They're looking to see how a player handles himself, how he may fit on a roster, how it all shapes up together. So it's not a question of a player's spring training stats getting him onto the team, though you will hear discussion about that. Teams will make decisions for a variety of reasons. Which players have options is a big one. In the Yankees' case, Anthony Volpe hasn't played much at AAA. That probably will factor into their decision. So there are all these different ingredients that go into the stew. And there's an old saying in baseball, don't trust what you see in March and in September. In March, well, we know why we don't trust what we see because it's spring training. Players are getting themselves into peak condition. It's not a complete picture. September, a little bit different, but what that phrase meant, it's probably not so applicable anymore, is don't trust what you see when minor leaguers come up. The rosters are expanded. They used to be expanded to 40. It's not the case now. Obviously, you trust the pennant race games, but you get the picture. So teams aren't going strictly off the numbers when they make these decisions. The way a player is hitting, sure, might factor in if he is competing, but they're looking at a lot of other things, and they probably, again, have a pretty good idea where they're going. 
All right, next question comes from Kyle, uh, and I mentioned the CBA. He says, now that the 2026 lockout already seems inevitable, what do you think needs to happen to avoid it? Players will never agree to a hard cap. The owners voted in Steve Cohen and clearly regret it. Even Drellick reported that Manfred formed a committee that's aimed at fixing this issue, but how much can that really help? Please give us some hope of avoiding another lockout. This feels worse than the last CBA. That's a little harsh, Kyle. <laughs> that is a little harsh, and let's enjoy the game on the field while we have it for the next several years. We still do have it. The CBA is not expiring till after the 26th season. We're good. But... As Evan has reported, I have reported, and others as well, we're not that good. And we're never going to be that good, given the strained relations between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. There's just too much history here, too much conflict, too much bad blood on both sides. What we've seen, though, and this is a fair point, Kyle, is I would say an early flaring of tensions. Evan wrote that story about the Economic Reform Committee. I believe that was a week ago Sunday. On Monday, I wrote a story about how the salary arbitration decisions escalated the tension as well. And I was sitting there thinking, man, didn't we just get done with all this? The thing is, it never really ends. And there's always going to be this natural conflict between management and labor in any industry, but particularly in this one because of as I said, the history. How do you avoid a lockout in three years' time, three and a half years' time? I'm not exactly sure. But the commissioner, Rob Manfred, had a fascinating quote in Evan's story about the Economic Reform Committee in which he said he can't even think about a salary cap right now because he has to get the owners kind of on the same page. I'm paraphrasing. I hope I'm getting that right. I think I am. Basically, what he was saying is there's disagreement among owners right now. Obviously, Steve Cohen is at one end of the spectrum, along with Peter Seidler. There are others in the middle. And then, of course, there are others way down on the other extreme. This has historically been a problem for the commissioner of baseball, whether it's Manfred or Bud Selig. The 94-95 strike happened in part because the owners had such differences. So... What will happen in the next few years obviously will be determinative of what happens with the next set of labor negotiations. There is a lot that needs to be resolved here. The television situation, the Bally's bankruptcy, etc., where it's going with streaming, ending the blackout rule, making sure teams are compensated the way they need to be. This is all part of the equation, and this is what Major League Baseball says you can believe them or not, is why the Economic Reform Committee was formed. Firstly, for television purposes. So that has to play out. A lot of things have to play out. We have to see how this CBA works, whether players benefit in the ways that they wanted to, whether the owners see it as fair to them. All of these things have to play out over the course of time. But If you're asking me, do I expect trouble in 2026, why wouldn't I when we've had trouble, really, since Marvin Miller formed the union in 1972? It's just the nature of this thing, and it's not ending. The old saying, expect the worst, hope for the best. And that's what we do in Major League Baseball. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, David is next. He says, one of the biggest complaints I hear in Milwaukee about why people don't watch baseball or the Brewers anymore is because of how often the players change teams. We saw the hater trade. It's unlikely Barnes stays long-term, and the future of a number of other players is still up in the air. We know the Brewers have less money than bigger market teams that can extend their stars, but is it possible MLB could incentivize or even reward contract extensions Maybe have a pool of money similar to the pre-arbitration pool that goes to the player or reward the team with one to two draft picks. It feels to me like a player spending his whole career in one place is something that can help grow the game, especially among casual fans. Thanks. David, it's a fair question. People ask this kind of thing a lot. I will speculate that the idea of incentivizing teams to award contract extensions is not, repeat, not something that the Players Association would endorse or like at all. And the reason for that is the more players who sign contract extensions, the fewer get to free agency where the open market drives salaries. So the union is not going to want anything along those lines. And frankly, if you're watching and paying attention, the San Diego Padres, a team that is in a market, some would say comparable to the Milwaukee Brewers, they seem to be signing players to extensions. Now, obviously, they're spending money in ways that other teams aren't. Their owner, Peter Seidler, seems to be either able and or willing to do it in ways that other teams aren't. Perhaps he's wealthier. I don't know. But as I wrote in an article about the Orioles last week, what the Padres are doing is frankly embarrassing to all of the other teams that are in comparable markets. Some slightly bigger, some slightly smaller. No, you get it. And they're kind of showing that, yes, this can be done. Now, granted, again, not all owners are of the same level of wealth or with the same willingness to spend. But in a sense, that's their problem. And frankly, I've said this and I believe it. The sport would benefit from an infusion of new owners who are willing to act more like Peter Seidler. And yes, more like Steve Cohen. Now, Steve Cohen's wealth is out on another planet from virtually every owner. But the teams that are not keeping their players, well, perhaps they need to look inward too. And granted, I will say one more thing on this topic. It is becoming more difficult for the teams without resources, or let's not put it that way, all teams have resources, the teams with less of a willingness to spend to keep their players. If you're a team with a young shortstop, 
let's say the Kansas City Royals with Bobby Witt. How are you going to keep Bobby Witt when Xander Bogarts and Carlos Correa and Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson, and all of these other shortstops go back to Tatis are getting these crazy large contracts? It becomes more difficult. It becomes more problematic. And questions like David's become more relevant. But I don't know that it's on the Players Association to fix that problem. It's on baseball to fix that problem. And I'll just add that if you look at other sports where there is incentives to keep players, like for instance, in the NBA, you can pay your own players more than you can than other teams can when they become free agents. So basically players are players are incentivized to stay with their club because they can technically make a little more money. Um, but look at the NBA. LeBron has played for, you know, Cleveland, Miami, back to Cleveland, the, the Lakers. Uh, Kevin Durant now has moved to multiple teams. Kyrie Irving jumps on a new team every year. James Harden has bounced all around. These are the best players in the league who can make more with the team they're with, and they're still bouncing around because they want the control, and good for them is what I would say, Ken. is like It's good that the players have this control because especially in baseball, there was a long time when they had no control. So I would say, I would say root for your team and not the players or – Go the other way and just completely root for players and don't worry about your team. But either way, it's a way to root for baseball and not worry too much about players jumping around the way they are. Tim, a couple more points on this. There are other ways to incentivize small market teams to spend. That's one thing. There are other things that can be done. And I thought of other sports too, and I should have mentioned this in my first response. The franchise tag, which is used in the NFL is another way of extending players. Now, I don't know that the Players Association would go for that either because it's the same thing. It would restrict players from going to free agency. But if baseball wants to encourage the players to stay with their teams, their original teams, again, there are other ways to boost small market teams and get them to spend a payroll floor, which, of course, the owners would want accompanied by a salary cap, would be one idea. But don't get me wrong, we're not getting a cap. <laughs> Franchise tag would be an interesting compromise because it would just be one player basically getting a cap. Um, all right, let's move on to Michael who says, I'm happy the baseball is back soon. I'm happy to see MLB is going to try out some new rules. Does Major League Baseball have a procedure to evaluate the effectiveness of these rule changes? Is there a willingness to rescind a rule that didn't achieve the desired outcome? Personally, I don't know if the three batter minimum achieved a meaningful improvement. I also wonder if it's needed anymore with limits on pitchers on the active roster and limits on the times a player can be optioned to the minors in a season. Good question. And... Initially, when I heard your question, my first thought was, okay, the pitch clock is going to reduce the times of games. The three batter minimum was introduced in part to cut down on pitching changes and, yes, reduce the time of games. So with the pitch clock, do you need the three batter minimum? I asked someone in Major League Baseball about that, and that person told me that what they want to do is encourage starters to go deeper. They don't want more specialization. They don't want more pitching changes. They want the starters going deeper into games. And in addition to that, because the relievers are so dominant, the league wants the offense, the batting team, to have more opposite side matchups where the hitters have the platoon advantage. So 
at least right now, the three batter minimum stays for that reason. These are all changes, including the three batter minimum, designed to boost offense. Now, if they ever get the roster below a maximum of 13 pitchers, and then teams start giving their starters more innings because they have no choice to pitch their starters deeper into games, I guess at that point, the three batter minimum might become redundant, but I don't know if I see going to 12 pitchers happening anytime soon. All right, moving on to Chet, who says, through changes to the ball and the rules, MLB is trying to make it slightly harder to hit home runs and to cover the infield on defense, slightly easier to hit singles and much easier to steal bases. To what extent are organizations modifying their approach towards scouting and development based on these changes? The Tigers and Blue Jays are moving in their fences. Does this represent pushback? Are any organizations talking about trying to find quicker infielders and base runners or giving less emphasis to having their hitters put the ball in the air? Chet, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this talk of a different baseball? (laughs) The balls are consistent from every year. We hear this every season, right? The balls are the same. Just kidding. Good question. And actually, Chet, it seems to me you're on to something. Given the rules changes, given the increased athleticism that will be necessary in the middle infield, the increased bat-to-ball skills that will be quite useful and more useful than they were when there was a shift in place, you're going to see some teams do different things and emphasize different things. That's a better way to put it. They're going to place a greater emphasis on that athleticism, on perhaps all-around hitters who can do a variety of things. So yes, the game will change as a reflection of these rules. I do expect that to happen, and that's healthy. We want to see players doing cooler things on the field both from the offensive standpoint and the defensive standpoint. You want your infielders, your middle infielders, ranging to a greater extent than they have in the past. So, yes, teams always are reacting to the different rules, always trying to game the system and figure out new ways to win according to what's in front of them. So, yeah, there's no question in my mind that as these rules take effect and we see them play out, we're going to have to see... how this works, the unintended consequences, the intended consequences, the way the game does actually change. But once we see all that, yes, teams will react in kind and place a greater emphasis on the things that we're discussing. All right, a couple more questions. This one's from Jonathan. He says, when discussing the inevitable MLB expansion, Charlotte and Nashville are always brought up as the most common targets after an A's move to Las Vegas. Charlotte seems like a perfect city for a Major League Baseball team. The Carolinas seem like an empty hole of baseball between Atlanta and the DMV. Nashville, however, seems like a more contentious location, particularly to my Cincinnati Reds. For an ownership group that cries small market, the idea of having to secede parts of Kentucky to a new team would seem untenable to the Reds. Would Major League Baseball attempt to placate the Reds in any way or would their potentially dissenting vote be ignored? Actually, it's not just the Reds that would be affected by a team in Nashville. The Braves have fans in Nashville. The Cardinals have fans in Nashville. So it's certainly a concern for those clubs. I imagine those clubs might fight it. The distance from Nashville to Cincinnati is 278 miles. 
Now, actually, that's not that small a distance. You look at all those teams in the Northeast Corridor. Granted, there are more people, and they're pretty bunched together. So, yes, it would be a concern, but I will tell you, Nashville, I was there last year during the wintertime. It is a booming city. It is a city where I could really envision Major League Baseball. It's the kind of place that is growing. A lot of players live there already, not that that really matters in any kind of decision, but it would make sense to me to put a team there. And yes, the Reds, the Cardinals, the Braves, they would have to perhaps work harder to compete for their fans. Oh my gosh, what's that? Competition. Yes, competition. That's a good thing, folks. And you know what? It goes back to the answer I gave earlier. If you can't afford your team, I'm not singling out Bob Castellini or Bob Nutting or several other owners, but I'm singling them out. If you can't afford your team or you can't afford to run it the way it should be run, then perhaps you should sell that team to someone with greater resources. There are plenty of people in this country I trust who would want to get into this business, which uh, if you notice, is a pretty booming business in many ways. Phil Castellini last year said, uh, who are you going to root for if you don't root for the Reds? Well, you root for Nashville, maybe, in a couple of years. <laughs> uh, Paul has our final question. It's actually about players and a team, which we haven't had much of this week. He says, love the show. Are the Padres really going into the season with Nick Martinez and Seth Lugo as their fourth and fifth starters? Are there other moves they are planning to make before the season starts? They seem to not have much room for error with their starting pitchers. Paul, you're forgetting one name, Michael Waka, who is also part of that mix. They actually have six starters. Now, Musgrove is going to open the year possibly, most likely, on the injured list because of that broken toe. But they do have that group. Now, will Darvish be as good? Will Snell be as good? Will this group stay together and be a viable playoff-type rotation for a team that certainly is expecting to go to the playoffs I don't know that the answer to that is yes. But if you're paying attention to the Padres, you'll notice that when they have a need, they generally are pretty aggressive trying to address it. I was at their game the other day, and Jackson Merrill, their number one prospect, stepped to the plate. He's an outfielder, big, rangy kid. And I remarked to the person sitting next to me, well, Take a good look at him now because July 31st, he most likely will be a former Padre. And you might say, oh, no, Ken, he's their top prospect. They're not. Get, guess what? They trade prospects all the time and not just for Juan Soto. So it is certainly the rotation, a possible area of concern for the Padres, something that they'll be watching closely. But even though their system is not nearly what it once was, I would expect A.J. Preller to be aggressive. His pattern is pretty clear by now. He spends money and he trades prospects. All right. Great questions again this week. If you want to get involved next time in a couple weeks, uh, get your voice on the show. First of all, call 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Uh, 
Much more coming up on the feed this week. We're continuing our previews as we bring you to opening day. The The roundtable is back. They will be out on Tuesday into Wednesday, previewing the American League Central Division. Uh, the week after that, it'll be the 3-0 show, previewing the NL Central. Then we'll move on to the Eastern Divisions the last couple of weeks in March as we preview every team leading up to opening day. If you want to join The Athletic, you can do it for $1.99 a month for 12 months as a new subscriber. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and also subscribe to our new YouTube channel for baseball, youtube.com slash at the Athletic Baseball Show. Uh, Ken, great answers as always. You have a great week and good luck getting ready for all those WBC games. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. And we'll talk to everybody soon.